I've been given a totally impossible task, but we'll try. And say something helpful. This is going to be incredibly selective uh, when you have a subject as wide as this, but we'll try. Graham reminded us last week about character. You remember clearly what he said. So he's got that clarity in his presentation, which is so helpful. It's about our work, because God does his work, but it's about our work. We develop our own character, God and grace being part of that very process. It's our worship. Remember worship in Greek, two words, proskyno and didaskakos. Proskyno is the intimate word to come forward to worship, to kiss the hand. You remember Esther? That was worship, but most of the time worship is translated in the New Testament. It's didaskakos, the word that is linked to ministry and to service. It's our witness. What we do, as I shall say many times, what we do is infinitely more important than any words we say. What you are shouts so loud, I don't hear what you're saying. What you are speaks so loud, I don't hear what you're saying. The Welsh, they tell me, have 16 ways to tell a person that you love them. I don't know whether that's true. The English have one word, love. I can talk, I can talk about loving my car, well I don't, but you can hear people talking about loving their car, loving their wife, loving their children, loving their football team. Well, not after yesterday, 3-0 beaten by Tottenham. Sorry about that. I obviously have at least one enemy in the congregation. <laughs> Loving your church. The Greeks had a great deal more depth to them in terms of the use of language, and they've got four key words. And it is important that we just get this out in the open before we move on to what I call more practical things. Eros, physical love. That's how you came into being. That's how I came into being. And in the context of God's covenant, inside marriage, love, physical love is a beautiful thing. Sadly, it's also a desperately destructive thing outside the context. You'll find that word in scripture. You'll find the word storge there, not very often, but it is there. But the two main words for love are, are philia, brotherly love, the relationship that we were talking about that Mark was referring to, uh, but the key word, and the uniquely New Testament word, is agape. Or if I was speaking to Americans, agape. Agape. Self-sacrificing love. I want to say, I say one or two things about that before we get into the heart of where I want to go with this massive subject. I had an English language teacher she was very brilliant, actually. And she was always saying, it's a verb and it's a doing word. And if you hear nothing else, please hear me say, love is primarily a verb and it is a doing word. Okay? It is what you 
do. It is not about your feelings. Now, let me be careful and not over-exaggerate. Love and feelings, I mean agape love, acting love, does have something to do with the feelings, but feelings are not the motivation. They are not the key characteristics. The key characteristic of agape love is what you do. That's your sermon. You can go home. Seriously. If you've heard that, really heard it, not with your head, but with your heart, and if you take that, you've got the key, or one of the keys, one of the most important keys. Now, when I first saw that I was speaking on, uh, on uh, love many, many months ago, and I've had months to think in so many different directions, but in the last 10 days, I have felt that the Lord's just focused my mind on three particular key words that I want to just leave with you this morning as a structure for your thoughts and meditation. They're all C's. Command, compulsion, contrition. Command, compulsion, contrition. You are, I am, commanded to love. You can't actually command a person to have feelings, so you understand why I say it's not a feeling word, it's a doing word. You can be commanded to do something, because it won't necessarily touch your feelings, and please don't think I'm saying that Christian love doesn't touch your feelings, I'm simply saying that feelings are not the basis for Christian love. You are commanded tell of God. Let me read to you. You want to follow? You can just listen if you want. Let me command you, turn you to the words of Jesus. He was asked in Matthew 22 about all the greatest commandments and he referred back to Deuteronomy 6 which is the Jewish Shema and he said this. Uh, well, let me put it in context. Verse 25, uh, verse 35, this is Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, what is the greatest command in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God, that's the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like this. Do you know what I'm gonna say? Love the Lord your, love your, sorry, let's read it correctly, I'm getting too excited. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm not going to take time going through the scripture this morning. You can go back and get a lexicon out and look at this, but I'm going to make four or five statements and then illustrate them in a way that I hope are helpful. You are called to love God, Right? Now, loving a person is complicated enough. Loving God is, in a certain sense, even more complicated because you've never seen him and he's a spirit. And how do you love a spirit? By what you do. By what you do. Scripture tells us to love yourself. That's your homework for the week. Essays on my desk next Sunday morning. 
what on earth does Jesus mean when he says, love yourself? I'll tell you, putting on my psychological hat, there's a profound depth in what Jesus is saying there about loving yourself. Most of us don't. Seriously. As a pastor of 30 years, I can tell you, most people don't love themselves. Love God. Love yourself. Love your neighbors. Well, Mark has illustrated that perfectly for us this morning. Love your enemies. Gosh, that's a biggie, isn't it? Again, we had illustrated love your enemies. Thinking about what you said, Simon, at the beginning. Love nature. Not love it in the sense of worshipping it. That's pantheism. It's God's creation. Ecology and how we look after nature says something about how we think. We understand loving God because loving God is about loving his creation as well. We're part of his creation, but I'm not talking about the human part. I'm talking about the other part. I see in Kenya and in India, they're trying to get rid of plastic bags. It will resolve a massive, a massive amount of ecological damage if they do that. Love God, love yourself, love your neighbors. This is your homework for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life. Love your enemies. Maybe rather than love nature, we ought to say respect and care for and steward nature rather than love. It can get confusing for people. You will have enemies or people that you think are your enemies and they may even be your enemies. Part of the Christian faith, which is why we're thinking about this word command to love our enemies, is to defuse those sort of situations. And you'll excuse the personal illustration, but it's, it made a massive impact on me when it actually happened. When I was doing my doctoral research, secretly I interviewed in Nigeria six Muslim imams, and almost every single one of them said to me, why have you taken this chance of speaking to us? We had a conversation about that. And then they all said the same thing. The thing that is unique about our faith is that the center is not the Muslim concept of power, but the, uh, the Christian concept of love. Right? Muslims are not your enemies. Muslims are your enemies to be loved if you think of them as enemies. I'm going to be up on the Ugandan border in another month's time again with the pastors. And I shall be looking at Ephesians with them. But that is so key. Secondly, do not underestimate as an illustration the power of actions. We'll be referring to the third century and to the very, very significant city of Alexandria. It was where all the key thinking came out in the Christian church from people like Clement and Oregon and characters like that. But 
as the church had been formed in Alexandria, they listened to these very eloquent sermons, and certainly some responded to the faith, but the key to the development of the church was the Black Death. Well, we think it was the Black Death. Because what happened in the city, rather like people are running away from Hurricane Irma, is that when someone got seriously sick, a plague came in a city in the third century, the people just ran out of the city and ran away. And Black Death came to Alexandria and literally thousands died. And people simply, the hoi polloi, simply ran out of the city to find safety away from this mysterious bug. The Christians stayed and many of them died to nurse those who contacted the Black Death. Historians tell us that that was the key to the real strengthening and formation of that church. Love is a doing word. What you do is so powerful. You'll need to hear the prompting of God. It's not a list, it's not a rule, but you will need to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit in relation to that. Words and works, yes, words are important. Francis of Assisi, everywhere I go, I preach the gospel. If necessary, I use words. In other words, the gospel is good news if it's seen incarnate. And I mustn't start into next Sunday sermon. You've got to put up with me next Sunday because I'm helping Graham out of a difficulty with scheduling. Your words are, are important. But infinitely more important is what you do. Laurie Christensen, who's a person whose name probably will mean nothing to you because I'm very old, but he was involved in the renewal movement, a Lutheran, American Lutheran, and he used to tell the story of, and he was a big preacher, and he was very, very well known. I'm sure he's safely home in heaven now. And uh, he used to tell the story of his little boy, and uh, it used to sing his dad in the pulpit thundering away as those Lutheran charismatics used to, and, uh, and dad was at home in a normal family set setting and dad was telling him off over something reasonably mildly and the little boy turned to his dad said daddy do you mean that or are you just preaching it's interesting isn't it what children think what you do is the key, not what you say. What you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. Command, your command, to you, to me. Go and love God, love yourself, love your neighbors, love your enemies. You'll need the grace of God to do that. You'll have the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. I'm not giving you another piece of legalism. And you will have that if you draw on it. 
Which leads me very, very interestingly and easily into the second thing that's on my spirit. And you may want to turn to this or you may just choose to listen. Uh, I want to turn into Ephesians. I told you in a month's time I'm going to be up again on the uh, South Sudanese border for uh, two weeks with the pastors there. And in a sense it flows out of that, but in a sense it has a real sense of coming for you as well and for me today. Compulsion. You look at the end of chapter three, it's one of the two prayers that are in Ephesians. You, you, you pick from Paul that sense of internal drive that actually with this group of Christians, he's actually begging God to, uh, to, to resource them and to do with them and for them and all that he had in purpose and all that he had in mind. In a sense, that's really why I've chosen that passage amongst several others to uh, be speaking to the pastors about in Uganda. But listen, let me read the words to you and pick out two ideas that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say and wants to say to me again and certainly wants to say to you. I, for this reason, and you need to read the previous verses of chapter three. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. I love that phrase in Greek. Dwell in your heart means so that Jesus can be at home in your heart. Is Jesus at home in your heart? Right? He sees what you see on the telly. He knows what you read. He knows what you think. Is Jesus at home in your heart? And here's the key. He says, uh, so that Christ may dwell or be at home in your heart through faith. And I pray that, and here's the two themes that I want to just leave with you as we come towards the, the, the final point I want to make. He talks about being rooted and being established. This is what he says. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. So if you're going to hear what I'm saying, what God's saying through his word about this theme of love being a command, things to do, where does all that come from? Does that come from us screwing up our determination? No, no, not at all. It comes as we are rooted and established in love. Now, Paul was a great one for mixing his metaphors. That's all right. Preachers do it all the time. The word rooted is fairly obviously an agricultural word, isn't it? Makes sense. That's why I got uh, Mark to read from John, uh, John 15, because it was picking out the theme of love, but it was also picking out the theme of rootedness. Can I ask where your roots are? Most of us will go home and probably at some stage put the news on again and 
it's been devastating. I have friends in the Caribbean and certainly quite a number of friends in Florida. And it's been devastating to see the impact of that wind and to see trees that you regard as beautiful creations from God literally so swept by that wind that their rootedness was not strong enough to hold them upright. Right? Now I want to ask you a question. I want to ask myself a question about your rootedness in Christ. Because it's not tested when everything is okay. Most of us can do life when everything's okay. We're reasonably competent and gifted. But your rootedness is tested in the extremities and the tension and the sheer spiritual ermas of life that come to us. And they do. Different for you than for me, different for all of us. But you need to be rooted in love. Mark read from Psalm 1, and that's a beautiful picture. It's very telling in the message. But it talks about being rooted by a stream of water. And of course, streams are always pictures of the Spirit in the New Testament. And you need to be rooted in love. So don't go digging up the roots all the time, but just make sure those roots are going deeper and deeper. I'm rereading for, must be the 10th time in my life, Richard Foster's uh, Celebration of Discipline. And you know Jesus didn't call for followers. He called for disciples, didn't he? And Richard Foster's a fascinating character. He's a, a charismatic Quaker, which might sound contradictory. But he talked about those internal disciplines of the spiritual life. And listen, you have no idea how disciplined or indisciplined I am. And I haven't about you. But the Holy Spirit knows. And he talks about, and it's worth reading. I've given, I've lent this to so many people and never seen it again. I must have bought scores of this book and passed it on. Talks about meditation, talks about prayer, fasting, study. Talks about the outward disciplines of simplicity, solitude. People can't stand being on their own. And they can't stand the modern culture. Sorry, I'm an old man. Can I say this? Can I say, one of the things that worries me is that young people are totally surrounded with noise. I mean, I love music too. Classic FM and the Beatles as well. John and I grew up in a similar city. But what about solitude? What about solitude? Who you are on your own? Service, submission, confession, worship, guidance. It's all there. And in these days when and I'm swinging from the chandeliers, theological, charismatic in that sense, but I do think sometimes we don't think enough about those internal disciplines of our life. The Puritans had it right in thinking about the importance 
And if we are rooted, then we will find ourselves established on a sure foundation. Was it, was it here or somewhere else? I think it was, I can't remember who was it. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Yeah, any of you remember that one with me? Some of us golden oldies can remember that. Yeah, of course we can. Security and life will kick you at some stage, I promise you. It may be doing it now. Security comes from being established, rooted on that rock. Rocks and roots, a bit contradictory imagery, but you can blame Paul for that. You need to be rooted, and you need to be established. So love is a command. It's an action that you need to fulfill under the direction of the Holy Spirit in relation to God, to self, to neighbors, to enemies, to, yeah, respecting nature. We need that compulsion, that sense of internal drive that keeps us and helps us to develop that sense of internal relationship with God that leaves us rooted and established in love. But I come to the third thing and the final thing, and somewhat more briefly. We're commanded. We're under compulsion. And it's the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, by the way. This is not human compulsion. But I want to think about contrition. Um... We were having a, I was having a conversation with uh, Carol in the week, just personal conversation in, in a purely social context. And something came up and I remember saying to her, what I, and I think I've said it here, the paradox is, to use Augustine's idea, that the closer you get to God, the more you are aware of your imperfections and your failure, and yes, your sinfulness. And I say that as someone who believes passionately in the gospel, because you begin to understand something of the mixed and intricate motivations that go on in our own lives, in my life, and in your life. So, we're all works in progress, we're all part of a, on a personal pilgrimage in relation to this issue of love. So I want to finish by referring to a very, very significant passage in the New Testament where Jesus deals with someone who had failed. And of course, I'm thinking about Peter. Our midweek Bible studies restarting on Wednesday. If any of you would like to join us, you're always welcome. I'd like to have a word with Rachel and I. We'll probably be meeting down at uh, uh, Margaret and uh, Ruth's. And we're looking at one Peter but I want to think about Peter. Peter is one of the most fascinating characters. He was a classic compulsive. You know, open your mouth and put your foot in it, that sort of character. Do you know any people like that? Maybe you're one of them, I don't know. There's something utterly genuine about Peter. Grew up on the Sea of Galilee was introduced to Jesus by Andrew, know so little about Andrew, 
Perhaps the best thing Andrew ever did was introduce his brother to Jesus. And Peter, well, you know the story, and I'm not going to tell the story because you know it. Deny you, Lord, me? No, never. Over my dead body. Jesus said to him, well, before the cock crows three times, you will. See, Jesus actually understands you better than you understand yourself. And he did. Back he goes to Galilee to at least to try and really, uh, to, uh, well, we'd, we'd need to be careful about motivation because the scripture doesn't tell us. There's parts of scripture that indicate Jesus had told them after his resurrection to go back there. And there are other parts as well. But uh, what the motivation was for him being back there, we don't know. But back he went, and in John 21, you can read the story of Jesus' uh, re-meeting of Peter and refacing of what Peter had done and said. And that's why I'm talking about contrition as we finish. Jesus was cooking fish on the seashore when they discovered uh, and found him. And you know there's the story of the miracle and I don't want to get sidetracked because time is just about gone. And when you do what Jesus tells you to do, that's where miracles happen and a miracle did happen. And they get ashore and they have a quiet reflective breakfast. They were tired, they'd been fishing all night. But Jesus knows that the reason he's there is to face Peter. And uh, you can read the story in John 21. And Jesus said to him, and this is why I explained the Greek words, because it's important to understand. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And of course, whether it, was he pointing to the fish? Was he pointing to all the other disciples? Peter was, always had his mouth open. You know, not me, Lord, I'm the leader. But we don't know. We don't know. But Jesus said, do you love me? And he uses the word agape. Self-sacrificing love. The stuff that took God to the cross in the person of Jesus to die. Do you love me with agape? And Peter says, Lord, I love you as a brother. Philia. And he says him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? Will you serve me? Will you go out and give yourself away? He says again a second time. Now you can make a play on the threefold question and the threefold denial if you like. I, I think there's a connection, but I can't prove it. Peter, the second time, says, I love you as a brother, as a, with Philia. I've not progressed to agape love, but I am your brother. And then Jesus, and this is part of incarnation, and this will come in, possibly come in next Sunday. Jesus always comes back to where we are, doesn't he? Aren't you glad he does? You don't have to start where Jesus is. Jesus will come to you where you're at. That's what incarnation's about. 
And he says, Peter, the third time, he says, well, do you love me as a brother? And this time he says, do you love me as a filia? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you as a brother. I suspect there's enough evidence scripturally to recognize that that was the turning point in Peter's life. You know the rest of the story to in the Acts of the Apostles of his life. You know something of his death. Tradition has it that he saw his wife killed before his eyes and then was hung upside down on a Roman gibbet to give his life like his saviour had given his life for him. Love is a doing word. What you do is the key. You're commanded. You're compelled. You're under compulsion to find that rootedness and that establishedness. But look, let's be honest. Am I the only one here who's ever failed? No. You've all been down that road. And Jesus always comes to us where we are. And I love the simplicity and yet the profound truth of this. Jesus, all Jesus wants from you is honesty. Right? Honesty. I mean, you're not going to, you can't con God. You might, you might try conning yourself. You might con your wife. You might con your friends. You cannot con Jesus. So come to God. Contritely. I suspect you will never have to seal your faith being crucified upside down. But you don't know what your willingness to respond to the love of God and the command that he gives us, where it may take you. And I've lived long enough to reflect on that. Please, will you reflect on that too? Let's pray together. Well, this word will go in a thousand different ways because we're all different and we've got all sorts of different issues going on in our lives. And we simply ask that by your spirit you will be the very hand of heaven. You will pursue us, not driving us, but wooing us to allow that love that led Jesus to the cross to be the motivation for all of our doingness, for all of our doingness so that the doing becomes the being eventually, by the grace of God. Amen.